Chapter One of the Heart of the Ancient Wood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sandra near Montreal, 2022. The Heart of the Ancient Wood by Charles G. G. Roberts. Chapter One The Watchers of the Trail. Not indolently soft like that which sifts in green shadow through the leafage of a summer garden, but tense, alertly and mysteriously expectant was the silence of the forest. It was somehow like a vast bubble of glass, blown to a fineness so tenuous that a small sound were it but to strike the one preordained and mystic note might shatter it down in loud ruin. Yet it had existed there, flawless for generations, transmuting into its own quality all such infrequent and inconsequent disturbance as might arise from the far-off cry of the panther, or the thin chirp of the clambering nuthatch, the long, solemn calling of the taciturn moose, twice or thrice repeated under the round October moon, or the noise of some great wind roaring heavily in the remote tops of pine and birch and hemlock. Few and slender were the rays of sun that pierced down through those high tops. The air that washed the endless vistas of brown-green shadow was of marvellous clarity not blurred by any stain of dust or vapour. Its magical transparency was confusing to an eye not born and bred to it, making the far branches seem near and the near twigs unreal, disturbing the accustomed perspective and hinting of some elvish deception in familiar and apparent things. The trail through the forest was rough and long unused. In spots the mosses and ground vines had so overgrown it that only the broad scars on the tree trunks, where the lumberman's axe had blazed them for a sign, served to distinguish it from a score of radiating vistas. But just here where it climbed a long, gradual slope, the run of water down its slight hollow had sufficed to keep its worn stones partly bare. Moreover, though the furrowing steps of man had left it these many seasons untrodden, it was never wholly neglected. A path, once fairly differentiated by the successive passings of feet, will keep almost forever a spell for the persuasion of all that go afoot. The old trail served the flat, shuffling tread of Kruf, the great she-bear, as she led her half-grown cub to feast on the blueberry patches far up the mountain. It caught the whim of Tentine, the caribou, as he convoyed his slim cows down to occasional pasturage in the alder swamps of the slow Quadavik. On this September afternoon, when the stillness seemed to wait wide-eyed. Suddenly a cock-partridge came whirring up the trail, alighted on a gnarled limb, 
turned his outstretched head twice from side to side as he peered with his round beads of eyes, and then stiffened into the moveless semblance of one of the fungoid excrescences with which the tree was studded. A moment more, and the sound of footsteps, of the nails of heavy boots striking on the stones, grew conspicuous against the silence. Up the trail came slouching with a strong but laborious stride, a large, grizzled man in grey homespuns. His trousers were stuffed unevenly into the tops of his rusty boots. On his head was a drooping, much-battered hat of a felt that had been brown. From his belt hung a large knife in a fur-fringed leather sheath and over his shoulder he carried an axe, from the head of which swung a large bundle. The bundle was tied up in a soiled patchwork quilt of gaudy colours, and from time to time there came from it a flat clatter, suggestive of tins. At one side protruded the black handle of a frying pan, half wrapped up in newspaper. Had he been hunter or trapper, Dave Titus would have carried a gun. Or had he been a townsman, a villager, or even an ordinary small country farmer, he would have taken care to be well armed before penetrating a day's journey into the heart of the ancient wood. But being a lumberman, he was neither quite of the forest nor quite of the open. His winters he spent in the very deep of the wilderness in a log camp crowded with his mates, eating salt pork, beans, hot bread, and too busy all day long with his unwearying axe to wage any war upon the furred and feathered people. His summers were passed with plough and hoe on a little half-tilled farm in the settlements. He had, therefore, neither the desire to kill nor the impulse to fear as he traversed neutral and indifferent these silent but not desolated territories. Not desolated, for the ancient wood was populous in its reserve. Observant, keen of vision, skilled in woodcraft though he was, the grave-faced old lumberman saw nothing in the tranquility about him save tree trunks and fallen rotting remnants and mossed hillocks and thickets of tangled shrub. He noted the difference, not known to the general eye between white spruce, black spruce and fir, between grey birch and yellow birch, between witherwood and viburnum, and he read instinctively by the lichen growth about their edges how many seasons had laid their disfeaturing touch upon those old scars of the axe which marked the trail. But for all his craft he thought himself alone, he guessed not of the many eyes that watched him. In truth, his progress was the focus of an innumerable attention. The furtive eyes that followed his movements were some of them timorously hostile, some impotently vindictive, some indifferent, but all alien. All were at one in the will to remain unseen, so all kept an unwinking immobility and were swallowed up, as it were, in the universal stillness. The cock partridge, a well-travelled bird who knew the settlements and their violent perils, 
watched with indignant apprehension. Not without purpose had he come whirring so tumultuously up the trail, a warning to the ears of all the wood folk. His fear was lest the coming of this grey man-figure should mean an invasion of those long black sticks which went off with smoky bang when they were pointed. He effaced himself till his brown mottled feathers were fairly one with the mottled brown bark of his perch, but his liquid eyes lost not a least movement of the stranger. The nuthatch, who had been walking straight up the perpendicular trunk of a pine, when the sound of the alien footsteps froze him, peered fixedly around the tree. His eye, a black point of inquiry, had never before seen anything like this clumsy and slow-moving shape, but knew it for something dangerous. His little slaty head, jutting at an acute angle from the bark, looked like a mere caprice of knot or wood fungus, but it had the singular quality of moving smoothly around the trunk as the lumberman advanced so as to keep him always in view. Equally curious but quivering with fear, two wood-mice watched him intently, sitting under the broad leaf of a skunk cabbage not three feet from the trail. Their whiskers touched each other's noses, conveying thrills and palpitations of terror as he drew near, drew nearer, came, and passed. But not unless that blind, unheeding heel had been on the very point of crushing them would they have disobeyed the prime law of their tribe, which taught them that to sit still was to sit unseen. A little farther back from the trail, under a spreading tangle of ironwood on a bed of tawny moss, crouched a hare. His ears lay quite flat along his back. His eyes watched with aversion, not unmixed with scorn, the heavy, tall creature that moved with such effort and such noise. Never, thought the hare disdainfully, would he be able to escape from his enemies. As the delicate current of air which pulses imperceptibly through the forest bore the scent of the man to the hare's hiding place, the fine nostrils of the latter worked rapidly with dislike. On a sudden, however, came a waft of another scent, and the hare's form seemed to shrink to half its size, the nostrils rigidly dilating. It was the scent of the weasel. To the hare it was the very essence of death. But it passed in an instant, and then the hare's exact vision saw whence it came. For the weasel, unlike all the other folk of the wood, was moving. He was keeping pace with the man at a distance of some ten feet from the trail. So fitted, however, was his colouring to his surrounding. So shadow-like in its soundless grace was his motion that the man never discerned him. The weasel's eyes were fixed upon the intruder with a malignancy of hate that might well have seared through his unconsciousness. Fortunately for the big lumberman, the weasel's strength, stupendous for its size, was in no way commensurate with its malice, or the journey would have come to an end just there, and the gaudy bundle would have rested on the trail to be a long wonder to the mice. The weasel presently crossed the yet warm scent of a mink, whereupon he threw up his vain tracking of the woodman and turned off in disgust. He did not like the mink and wondered what the fish-eater would be wanting so far back from the water. He was not afraid, exactly. Few animals know fear so little as the weasel. 
but he kept a small shred of prudence in his savage little heart, and he knew that the mink was scarcely less ferocious than himself, while nearly thrice his size. From the mossy crotch of an old ash tree slanting over the trail, a pair of pale yellow-green eyes with fine black slits for pupils watched the traveller's march. They were set in a round furry head which was pressed flat to the branch and partly overhung it. The pointed tufted ears lay flat back upon the round brown head. Into the bark of the branch four sets of razor-edged claws dug themselves venomously, for the wild cat knew perhaps through some occult communication from its far-off domesticated kin of hearth and doorsill that in man he saw the one unvanquishable enemy to all the folk of the wood. He itched fiercely to drop upon the man's bowed neck just where it showed red and defenseless between the gaudy bundle and the rim of the brown hat. But the wild cat, the lesser lynx, was heir to a ferocity well-tempered with discretion, and the old lumberman slouched onward unharmed all ignorant of that green gleam of hate playing upon his neck. It was a very different gaze which followed him from the heart of a little colony of rotting stumps in a dark hollow near the trail. Here in the cool gloom sat Kroof, the bear, rocking her huge body contemplatively from side to side on her haunches, and occasionally slapping off a mosquito from the sensitive tip of her nose. She had no cub running with her that season to keep her busy and anxious. For an hour she had been comfortably rocking, untroubled by fear or desire or indignation. But when the whirring of the cock-partridge gave her warning and the grating of the nailed boots caught her ear, she had stiffened instantly into one of the big brown stumps. Her little red eyes followed the stranger with something like a twinkle in them. She had seen men before, and she neither actively feared them nor actively disliked them. Only averse to needless trouble, she cared not to intrude herself on their notice, and therefore she obeyed the custom of the wood and kept still. But the bear is far the most human of all the furry wood folk, the most versatile and largely tolerant, the least enslaved by its surroundings. It has an ample sense of humor, also that most humane of gifts, and it was with a certain relish that Kroof recognized in the gray-clad stranger one of those loud axemen from whose camp, far down by the Quad d'Avic, she had only last winter stolen certain comforting rations of pork. Her impulse was to rock again with satisfaction at the thought but that would have been out of keeping with her present character as a decaying stump, and she restrained herself. She also restrained a whimsical impulse to knock the gaudy bundle from the stranger's back with one sweep of her great paw and see if it might not contain many curious and edifying things, if not even pork. It was not till she had watched him well up the trail and fairly over the crest of the slope that with a deep, non-committal grunt, she again turned her attention to the mosquitoes, which had been learning all the tenderness of a bear's nose. These were but a few of the watchers of the trail, whose eyes themselves unseen scrutinized the invader of the ancient wood. Each step of all his journey was well noted. 
Not so securely and unconsideringly would he have gone, however, had he known that only the year before there had come a pair of panthers to occupy a vacant lair on the neighboring mountainside. No, his axe would have swung free, and his eyes would have scanned searchingly every overhanging branch, for none knew better than old Dave Titus how dangerous a foe was the tawny northern panther. But just now, as it chanced, the panther pair were hunting way over in the other valley, the low, dense, wooded valley of the Quadavic. As matters stood, for all the watchers that marked him, the old lumberman walked amid no more imminent menace than that which glittered down upon him from four pairs of small bright eyes high up among the forking limbs of an old pine. In a well-hidden hole, as in a nursery window, were bunched the smooth heads of four young squirrels, interested beyond measure in the strange animal plodding so heavily below them, had they been settlement squirrels, they would without doubt have passed shrill comments, more or less uncomplimentary. For the squirrel loves free speech. But when he dwells among the folk of the ancient wood, he, even he, learns reticence. And in that neighborhood, if a young squirrel talks out loud in the nest, the consequences which follow have a tendency to be final. When the old lumberman had passed out of their range of view, the four little heads disappeared into the musky brown depths of the nest and talked the event over in the smallest of whispers. As the lumberman journeyed, covering good ground with his long slouching stride, the trail gradually descended through a tract where moss-grown boulders were strewn thick among the trees. Presently the clear green-brown of the mid-forest twilight took a pallor ahead of him, and the air began to lose its pungency of bark and mould. Then came the flat, soft smell of sedge, and the trees fell away, and the traveller came out upon the shores of a lake. Its waters were outspread, pearly white from a fringe of pale green rushes, and the opposite shore looked black against the pale, hazy sky. A stone's throw beyond the sedge rose a little naked island of black rock, and in the sheen of water off its extremity there floated the black, solitary figure of a loon. As the lumberman came out clear of the trees and the gaudy colours of his bundle caught its eye, the bird sank itself lower in the water till only its erect neck and wedge-shaped head were in view. Then, opening wide its beak, it sent forth its wild peal of inexplicable and disconcerting laughter, an affront to the silence, but a note of monition to all the creatures of the lake. The loon had seen men before and despised them, and found pleasure in proclaiming the scorn. It despised even the long black sticks that went off with smoky bang when pointed, for had it not learned in another lake near the settlement to dive at the flash and so elude the futile spattering pellets that flew from the stick? The lumberman gave neither a first nor a second thought to the loon at all, but quickened his pace in the cheerful open. The trail now led some way along the lake side, till the shore became higher and rougher, and behind a cape of rock a bustling river emptied itself, carrying lines of foam and long ripples far out across the lake's placidity. From the cape of rock towered a bleak, storm-whitened rampike which had been a pine tree before the lightning smote it. 
Its broken top was just now serving as the perch of a white-headed eagle. The great bird bent fierce yellow eyes upon the stranger, eyes with a cruel-looking straight overhang of brow, and stretching its flat-crowned snake-like head far out to regard him. It opened the rending sickle of its beak and yelped at him, three times at deliberated interval. Then the traveller vanished again into the gloom of the wood, and the arrogant bird plumed himself upon a triumph. The trail now touched the river, only to forsake it and plunge into the heart of a growth of young Canada balsam. This sweet-smelling region traversed, the soft roar of the stream was left behind, and the forest resumed its former monumental features. For another hour the man tramped steadily, growing more conscious of his load, more and more uninterested in his surroundings. And for another hour his every step was noted by intent, unwinking eyes from branch and thicket. Then again the woods fell apart with the spread of daylight. He came out upon the spacious solitude of a clearing, pushed through the harsh belt of blackberry and raspberry canes which grew as a neutral zone between forest and open, picked his way between the burned stumps and crimson fireweeds of a long desolate pasture, and threw down his bundle at the door of the loneliest cabin he had ever chanced to see. End of chapter 1